Welcome to Social Work Stories podcast. Hello, Liz. Hello, Mim. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Uh, I hope everyone's well. Have you had a good week, Liz? I have, and it's a Friday, so happy Friday. Absolutely. Happy Friday to you. We've got a really interesting story to talk about today. As usual. I wanted just to start off by letting the listeners into a bit of a discussion we've had here at the podcast because we are really conscious about being an international, having an international audience, but also about us being based here in Australia. And we are really aware that throughout the episodes we've spoken um, back and forth about the responsibilities that our profession has towards Indigenous peoples around the world and specifically about the history of colonialism um, in many countries but including our own in Australia and, uh, and, the, and the really difficult history that social workers have in this space. Mm. I want to kind of own that in this episode, Liz. I'm really conscious that we're going to t- uh, share with the listeners a story that is about working with an Aboriginal Australian family. And I want to own that you and I and our team, we're not from an Indigenous background. Uh, and um, many social workers in Australia and in other countries are not as well. Mm. But that doesn't uh, stop our responsibilities in this space or our need to work with each other in a respectful, collaborative manner, as we know, as we know. So uh, coming up on the podcast, we do have an episode where we're going to really delve quite deeply into working with the uh, Indigenous Aboriginal community and Torres Strait Islander community here in Australia and the implications for social work practice around that. And I'm really looking forward to that episode. Me too. Yeah, I think it's a topic that we really need to get our teeth into and have a real discussion about that that makes it make sense for everyone, not just you and me, but all of our professional community as well. Uh, But for this episode now, I just want to couch it that we're coming from a place of not knowing, of um, inherent curiosity, and of us really wanting to think about social work practice in this space in and of itself in the same way we do in other spaces but particularly given the nature of this context we're really focusing on the practice itself. And we might even come back to it Mim after we've had that discussion with that particular social worker that we're going to meet next week. We might even reference our our post-mortem today uh, with new knowledge. Yeah, and I love that actually, that this is a space that because we're coming from such a place of not knowing and curiosity, that actually this could grow and develop for us as well, even though you and I, you know, old hand practitioners, that actually it's a place that continues to evolve, right? Yeah. Yeah. As good practice should, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I would hate if you and I were sitting here from a place of expertise in um in this space that just doesn't sit well for me at all me too so so listeners enjoy the story um and uh and we're listening alongside you and then we'll come back afterwards and have a chat thanks everyone This family were referred to um, our service, well, they booked into birth with our service uh, because mum was Aboriginal. So we work with families where either either parent is Aboriginal, just having an Aboriginal baby. And um, they were referred to us early in the pregnancy 
Um, the referral to social work came about from mum herself because uh, she identified that she had some um, support needs in terms of relapse prevention and not, uh, yeah, experiencing the vulnerabilities that she had in the past. There was a long history of child protection issues for this family and um, both parents had a history of FACTS involvement, which is the statutory child protection agency. Uh, Mum had actually had five children in the care of FACTS and she was about 25 when she came to our service from memory. So she had relinquished care of three of those children when she wasn't coping. Um, and then another two had been uh, assumed into care, but all five had um, were, were still not in her care at the time. Uh, Dad was had a very long history of um, child protection involvement himself as a child. Um, he came from a family with a, a really long history of involvement with all his siblings, uh, as did Mum. And um, his involvement had also included his he was like a, a support person for his sister who had had her child removed in some fairly traumatic circumstances. So, um, yeah, so they both had very long trauma histories, um, which was relevant because it, it's interesting in cases where you're not the first social worker that somebody has come across or been involved with, and there's the, um, the results of all the, the interventions past um, that, that these people bring with them. Yeah, so mum had identified that she would like some support around um, her alcohol uh, relapse issues or concerns. Uh, so mum had a history of um, consuming between one to two bottles of spirits a day. Um, and she had done that up until she fell pregnant with this baby, but ceased because she wanted the best for her baby and she knew that it wasn't a healthy thing to do. So she was reporting that she hadn't been using, but that she was frightened she was going to go back to using again. And that was the concern from FACTS as well, based on her history of use and her history of, uh, I guess you could say mental health concerns, because she'd been in a position where she wasn't coping and had relinquished care of some of her children, which is actually a real strength that she'd identified their needs, but um, she was concerned about that too. So she was quite open to, to yeah, social work support and involvement. Dad was a little bit more um, reserved throughout some of our processes. And I think a lot of that is to do with his family history of, yeah, intervention from social workers. So that's why I say that's kind of a, a challenge that, yeah, when people are reluctant to engage or to, to fully engage because of their past experience, whether they've been institutionalised or, yeah, been a child in care sometimes. And sometimes there's a response where they'll just tell you what you want to hear because they're used to, yeah, that they get to know the drill. <laughs> and that can be quite hard too because it's, it's like a form of gratuitous concurrence. They just, yeah, agree with everything and, yeah. So a previous concern had also been that mum had a poor record of antenatal care for her other pregnancies, but that actually was something that um, that we weren't so concerned about. She actually engaged really well with the midwives and worked really well with the service around her baby's needs. 
Um, we linked them into uh, something that we have here called perinatal family conferencing, which is where representatives from FACS and from health meet with the family and any additional supports, any family members that people want there, and with an external facilitator. And we meet together and look at the strengths and the worries and the, the plan for the hopes and dreams for the, the baby using the three houses tool. Um, so we referred them to that process. We decided that they were eligible for that. That was really effective because I feel like it was effective because Dad actually had had a voice in that process. So this was his first baby, I should have mentioned, his first baby, whereas it was Mum's sixth baby. Yeah, and she had a very long history of her own trauma. Her mother had died, I think, within the last 12 months, very suddenly at a very young age. Her, the father of her three eldest children had died at about age 23, again quite suddenly. So she had lots of unresolved grief and loss and, and had also been through these processes with facts in terms of talking about the safety of a baby before, whereas Dad was a bit newer to, to that context of like talking about worries and safety and that kind of thing. So it was, it was a good process for him to, um, to have a voice and to hear yeah, what his experiences have been and what mum's experiences have been. The main intervention would be just, I guess, providing psychosocial support around their antenatal appointments. So sometimes sitting into the appointment, which is something I'm able to do occasionally, and that can be quite helpful for, for them to know that we do this as a team and to almost to destigmatize social work in a way. It's a bit different to saying, right, we need you to go and see the social worker now and having this set appointment. And it's kind of really getting in there where they're at on that journey and just checking in with them and that kind of thing. So that would probably be the main form of support that I'd offer in addition to the more formal processes that happen with facts. And it kind of supplements that too. It's checking in, how did they feel about the meeting? Um, is there anything else that we need to bring up, you know, or anything else I need to feed back to the, the facts caseworker and that kind of thing? Yeah, and then I think there was housing support and linking them up with relevant relevant services that had come from the perinatal family conferencing. Yeah. So families are... The ideal for perinatal family conferencing is to have three meetings and families are generally referred from... 20 weeks on so I think she was about 24 weeks pregnant when we had the first one and we did actually manage to have three meetings which was great it doesn't always happen it what stood out to me with the perinatal family conferencing for this family and why it was ideal was that they had the chance to kind of talk about a bit about the past trauma but that was also relevant because PFC is a chance for health and community services to acknowledge the past trauma and the hurt that has happened, particularly for Aboriginal families. And it's really powerful healing process in many ways. And in many ways, it's what we see when it works well is uh, when staff, particularly facts, practice vulnerability and they practice, you know, saying, we're really sorry that this has happened to you and it was our agency that, you know, has contributed to a lot of your hurt and pain then families are more in a space, yeah, they're, they're more likely to come along with you to talk about, okay, what are we worried about? So it's that acknowledgement of, of the pain, really, instead of just jumping straight to 
what are we worried about and not looking at all about how we got there. Um, so that's really powerful and particularly also in the same instance for young people that have been in care and a huge amount of the families that engage in this process have been in care themselves and may have had very adverse experiences in care. So it's a chance to acknowledge their own journey with these kind of processes. It's also, in this particular case, it was a powerful way to explore what what kind of world they wanted for this baby, but also to, to have conversations with mum around yeah, what her hopes were, particularly given that she had had times in her life where she wasn't in a space where she was able to care for her kids and did she want to do this and yeah what did that look like and what what kind of support did she think she needed for that journey which is again that's a really hard conversation to have and it's not something you can just jump into um saying you know do you have what it takes to do this but I think it's it taps into it's an ideal conversation to be able to have with women and it's trusting that they yeah listening for what they actually want to do and not letting our (laughs) what we think they want to do get in the way and that's particularly relevant I think for as a non-aboriginal social worker working with um, aboriginal families that part of decolonizing our practice is to not come in with assumptions about what Aboriginal families need and she's an Aboriginal woman therefore she's going to she's going to be worried about this or she's going to want x y and z instead being open to to listening to what it is that she thinks that she wants and needs and empowering her to pursue that because that also comes up with child protection um, work in terms of we can we can believe that every mother wants to go home with her baby and that that's what she's aiming for. But sometimes women are trying to tell us subtly that they don't think they're able to do that and they want their baby protected. So we have to help them find, or we assist them to find other ways that baby can be safe and always on the lookout, I guess, for are they trying to tell us this by, you know, not even not in words necessarily, but are they doing certain things to show us that maybe they would like us to support them in um, finding other options for baby where they can still be with family and culture and community and yeah so in this case mum wanted to go home with baby although to be honest we were we were always a little bit unsure as to whether that was what she really wanted Um, and that's in the context of I think because of her own trauma history she um Perhaps there were times where we didn't feel like she was being really open with us about what she actually wanted and also the fact that this was Dad's first baby and he was adamant that baby was coming home and he really, really wanted that. So there was a bit of tension there about is that actually, is that what they both want? Do they both want the same thing essentially, which is something that can come up in these meetings. It can become apparent that... Um, the two parents actually have different ideas about what safety looks like and what they want and then facts can have a different idea as well so it's yeah so she gave birth and that went well that was okay she had a good birth dad stayed with her on the ward baby was well she went home to or she went she was discharged to rehab with baby and unfortunately, uh, within 24 hours of being at rehab, she um, identified that she couldn't do it. 
or couldn't, you know, wasn't in a position to parent this baby. And they contacted Fax and Fax came and placed baby in the care of dad. And he went and stayed with some supportive family um, elsewhere that were going to help him with with Bub. And um, yeah, it may sound like not a particularly happy ending, but in many ways, I think it's a good example. It's a case that's a good example of how we can make processes as least traumatic for families as possible. So even if there's going to be a really adverse outcome, it's giving families the chance to have conversations around risk and their experiences, even just making the, the pregnancy a positive experience, so accessing healthcare here at the hospital, like that was a positive experience for mum, a place free of judgement and that kind of thing, which is a good start for baby in lots of ways. And I think she reflected that by coming to appointments and yeah, accessing that care. Um, but it's also important to recognise like giving voice to um, people's experiences and also like I mentioned can, whether people like what people want to do and helping them be in a place where they feel safe enough to say I can't do this and what's another option in, in many ways it was a strength that she was able to say this isn't working I need you know we need to pursue a different option for baby that was a real strength even though it's not the the nice rosy picture of mum and baby being together it it actually yeah I think it was a lot better than it could have been Nim have you ever heard of gratuitous concurrence before? Not before this story, no. It's not a phrase I'm actually familiar with. I love it. I yeah. absolutely love it. And I understand the concept, but I didn't know that it was called that. And I'm reflecting back now on clients who I think um, quite, quite definitely told me what they think I wanted to hear at various times. And similarly to this particular story, it was often to do around parenting and child protection issues. Yeah, it's, it's a bit about shame, isn't it? About all being exposed sometimes. That and is it safe to talk with you about what I'm really thinking or what I'm really doing? Um, that question of whether the social worker standing at your door is a safe person or not or is inherently unsafe. Mm. That was a really interesting point of this story, I think, uh, that social work comes with a legacy. Oh, yeah, especially with Australian Aboriginal clients. And I reckon it's one of those questions I like to ask with most people. Have you ever worked with a social worker before? Do you start... Do you start Absolutely, I do. I mean, it's part of my introduction and it will, it's a great segue into getting a sense of what they think I might be working with them on. Yeah. Um, And also what experience that they've had. And so. And I guess then it's a good segue into then where therefore, why are you there and what's your role? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the social worker would have just assumed, given this particular woman's history with three children she's relinquished, two have been assumed in 
from her care, that there would have been many a social worker involved. Oh, absolutely. This is a familiar situation she's now in. Mm. So how does... The thing I'm wondering about is how do you as a social worker try and create a safe space? Try and establish a rapport where the client feels able to be authentic and honest about their fears, about what's actually going on. Well, when you're describing it like that, Liz, what I'm thinking is that that just sounds like a dream. (laughs) That, That you can create this space that is so lacking in history or agenda Mm. that actually someone would be completely free to share anything and everything from their past, from their present, anything they're thinking. I I don't even know whether that's possible. And I wonder whether the best that we can do in social work practice is actually just to simply acknowledge the history that came before us when we walked in. So what were the previous experiences the person had had with social work? Whether they are grounded in cultural heritage, colonialist behaviours like our context here in Australia, Or, you know, in child protection, this isn't just Aboriginal families who carry this legacy, right? Like, this is actually throughout the community. And it's not just in child protection. People walk through hospital doors with heavy, heavy history behind them. Any sort of government department often lingers that paternalist approach that people have had throughout their lives. You're right. And I liked the way that within the perinatal family conferencing, there was an opportunity for the the facts or the child protection agency workers to acknowledge that history. Yeah. That would have been very powerful for this these parents, I I would I would suggest, given their own childhood of trauma and contact with with uh, child protection agencies. But imagine like how qualitatively differently different that dynamic now is when you start the relationship by acknowledging past history and past trauma as opposed to starting from a point where that history and previous experiences is just brushed aside and I I kind of think why do so many professionals or organizations think that that's the way to go with people to start from this point that we're now meeting at and only look to the future my instinct tells me that that's about protecting either themselves or the client I'm not sure what do you think Gosh, I think you're right. I think it, there would be some sense that it would be easier if we just say, look, let's just focus on the here and now yeah, and not acknowledge the murky, dark, dirty history that we might, our agency or our profession has had with you. It's just too hard. So let's just focus on the here and now. But it's like what we said when we started this podcast episode that we'd rather sit in a space of not knowing and inherent curiosity to in therefore be respectful rather than take a position as expert, right? Mm. And I think that the danger of starting a relationship with someone and not acknowledging what came before is that it does take on a position of expert. You're saying what's happening now is in some way more important than what came before. Mm. As opposed to... I acknowledge what happened in the past and I feel deeply sorry for what our agency contributed in whatever, however they language it. 
And I want to ensure that my work with you does not make you feel unsafe or does not repeat some of those deep-held wounds that have been caused as a result of past practice. How do we engage in this relationship together uh, in a way that um, helps you feel safe, in a way that gives you the dignity of choice to respond to me in the way that you feel you can? That's right. Um, Don't you think that that, for some people, requires an act of bravery, Liz? On on both parties, I think, Mim both from the perspective of the social worker practising as openly and as honestly as that, and then most definitely the client. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think there's a vulnerability in how we practise that's needed in that space, Mm. that actually in order to avoid us being the expert in the room and avoid us therefore slipping into past practices that we do need to be vulnerable and open to the possibility that of just admitting our not knowing what that could bring yeah and I got a sense from this particular social worker she would do that really well oh yeah yeah absolutely so what stood out for you in the interview you know what I really liked Liz I liked this idea that this story doesn't have a happy ending So often we hope that stories will end beautifully with a big red bow tied at the end. But in social work, we know that's not the reality. And but we also know that there's no happy versus unhappy endings. Actually, that's not how human nature works and humankind works, that we exist in a world of grey. So what might be one person's happy ending is actually somebody else's unhappy ending. Mm. Right. So in this story, the um, mother relinquishes care of that baby to the father and to the kinship care model. Uh, And what I really liked was how grounded in practice this social worker was in her strength based focus. Yeah, I, I love that too, Mim. And the way in which she spoke about the mother demonstrating the best version of her mothering at that moment in time. Yeah. At that moment in time, she was basically saying, I cannot care for this baby in the way that I think it deserves. Um, Therefore, I can't be caring for this baby. And so, you know, like I'm in mixed mind about whether or not that is in fact a happy ending at this point in time. Well, I think it's divisive actually. I don't think it's easy to sit on one side of that. But I love that question about what's your vision for the future of your baby? Mm. You know, that's just gorgeous. That's grounded in a sense of hope and a positive future, regardless of whether you are the person with that child or not. There's a vision that you may have for that child that can still be realised. Yes. Yes. That is, I think utterly speaks to being where the strength the core of strength is for that person and Mim it builds on that that timeline that we were just talking about earlier about the acknowledging the past about being present with the person the client where they're at right at this very moment but also providing space for them to imagine future and what that could look like so for this mother that future might actually mean that in the course of time, 
I build a pathway to you know, being more of a of a of a presence in this this baby's life. Yeah, and maybe it's going to be involved in sharing it with the father. Who knows? But the door was open to that conversation, and without the judgment. So I really respected how this social worker described with her strength-based language the decision that this mum ended up making. And I would imagine that that mum would feel like she could continue to talk to this social worker about other possibilities, future plans. Isn't that the continuation of the safe space though? That actually if you if she feels safe in the relationship with that social worker, then she could be vulnerable enough to be able to talk about possible other futures. Yes. Well, I mean, she's just been vulnerable to admit, I am not in a place at this moment in time to be the best version of myself to mother this baby. Yeah. And it isn't, I mean, we all know that motherhood is the most judgmental space oh, that exists God, at yes, all. Yes. But, in this, but in this context, uh, that much more so, right? Because mm. this is the ultimate decision about whether or not you can continue to care for your baby. And it was also respecting the father and yes. his, his hope to parent this baby. Um, and the importance of kinship care, the importance mm. of the family and the community in the future for this baby, actually, um, and being really culturally grounded in that as well, in, in the social worker's practice. I think uh, if you're working with students, as yes, I know Liz. you do... I'd be pointing out this episode as a social worker that is so grounded in strength-based approach that the language, to, again, this is another practitioner who didn't have to actually say, I use strength-based approach <laughs> with my clients. It is through every sentence that we have recorded. Yeah, that's really true. That's really true. I do love, love it when social workers just are able to just weave in that theory so beautifully. Mm. It's just perfect. Liz, I'm feeling like we might end our conversation there. Okay. What a good one. Oh, well, and I don't think we needed to have commented a great deal about the details of the story because a social worker did that. Yes, yeah, she so spoke beautiful. for us to a story herself, which was fabulous. We are going to say goodbye, but before we do, thank you to everyone who's been commenting, rating, Twitter, Instagram, all the wonderful ways of getting to touch with us. We love it and love the virtual community we're creating here and um, sitting by the fireside with our colleagues. It's fantastic. We also want to really thank uh, Ben Joseph and Justin Stesh, our producers. And um, Brenna, our student, is about to finish up and thanking her for her hard work. And thank you to you, Liz, for everything you, co you continue to con contribute. Thank you, Mim. Can I just maybe make a plug for another podcast? Oh, please do. Given that we're wanting to increase our learning and understanding um, in terms of working with Aboriginal Australian clients and how we talk about that on the podcast and how we promote culturally sensitive practice in our podcast... I wanted to just mention that the, there is a podcast called Decolonising Social Work that our listeners might want to listen to as well. Absolutely, they should. 
Oh, and another great podcast, Mim, that's worth mentioning in this realm is Talk the Walk. Absolutely. Yeah. For all you avid podcast listeners, and some of you will be, you know, just committed to us and we understand and appreciate that. But for those of you who listen to a range of podcasts, absolutely dive into those too. I think that'll, and for all our international listeners, that will really give you an insight into the history of colonisation in um, the beautiful Australia. In the social context. Absolutely. On that note, see you later, Liz. Ciao, Mim. Bye, everyone. Bye.